From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's our final show of the year, and per tradition, we are celebrating by looking back. Every December, the Good Food team puts our heads together and selects our favorite interviews of the year. I hate to call it a best of show because there are many favorites that don't make it in, but for us, these next segments were some of the highlights. Black Food Fact. Did you know that Disney's Princess Tiana from The Princess and the Frog, she actually drew inspiration from a real-life person. And that real-life person was Leah Chase, the legendary chef in New Orleans. She was known as the queen of Creole cuisine, and she was a big advocate for African-American art and, of course, Creole cooking. And when Disney animators were looking for inspiration, they stumbled upon her story and met with Leah Chase, and the rest was history. How do we make change without being overt about it? That's been the question rattling around K.J. Kearney's brain these last few years. His answer? Black Food Fridays. In April 2020, he launched the initiative as a way to support Black-owned restaurants. Since then, his cheeky, hilarious, and informative videos have found a hungry audience. Black Food Fridays has more than 100,000 followers on Instagram and 155 followers on TikTok. And earlier this year, Kearney was nominated for a James Beard Award. We asked him to join us to discuss the power of social media advocacy in our tech-driven world. Hi, KJ. That was a beautiful intro. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Can you explain the goal with Black Food Fridays? How long did you spend thinking about it before you put it into action? Man, uh, to answer the second part of the question, maybe 15 minutes. Like it took me 15 minutes to uh, decide and then execute, you know, pull the trigger, get the email address, the whole nine, start the Instagram account. But in a larger sense, I think that Black Food Fridays, the concept has been around for a couple years. I wrote the proclamation for Red Rice Day in the city of Charleston, and that showed me that you can use food in a political way because food is political, but it's also a way to bring people together. So I hope to, through my work with Black Food Fridays, radicalize people, but in a way that's fun, in, in a way that they don't even realize it's, it's happening. What's your nine-to-five job? I'm a community organizer for a nonprofit organization called Charleston Promise Neighborhood, and I primarily work with neighborhood association leaders in some historically black neighborhoods uh, where we service elementary schools that feed into them. So you mentioned that you made a proclamation about Red Rice Day. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, 2018, I submitted a proposal for uh, the city of Charleston to formally recognize the culinary achievements and foundations that my ancestors, the Gullah Geechee people, which are the direct descendants of the West Africans who were forcibly enslaved here in Charleston and beyond. Uh, I wanted to make sure that the city did a good job of recognizing that that foundation that we rest upon comes from my ancestors. Red rice is like the American cousin of West African jollof. We still eat it to this day. And so I thought it was a way to both bring recognition to this dish that I love so much, but also allow the city to formally recognize that, yes, it is a food city and the world knows Charleston as a food city, but that didn't come out of thin air. It came from the blood, sweat, and tears and the culinary skills of the Gullah Geechee men and women 
that were here in Charleston in the greater area. And did that come to pass? Did the city go ahead and recognize that cultural significance? Absolutely. It was adopted in 2018. And so Red Rice Day is the last Saturday of September here in the city of Charleston. So fantastic. So you were raised in the Gullah Geechee Corridor of South Charleston. Did you grow up aware of how special your culture was? Man, that is a great question. Actually, I did not. I mean, in Charleston County School District, I'm a product of Charleston County Public Schools. It wasn't taught. It was not taught. The Gullah Geechee culture and heritage was not taught. It wasn't taught about from a cultural standpoint, from, you know, how special the dialect is, the food, how we influence most of American cuisine, that black culture as we know it in America started here. None of that stuff was presented. I didn't know that it was special until I went off to college. I went to an HBCU called South Carolina State University, home of the Mighty Bulldogs and Marching 101. And it was there that I learned about Gullah Geechee culture and and how special it is. You share a lot of interesting stories and facts about the role of Black people in American food culture. How do you decide what topics you want to address and what kind of research goes into a subject before you do a video about it? The type of research, the research can come from anywhere as the ideas come from everywhere. I read maybe 50, 60 articles a day. I'm reading, you know, multiple books at a time, watching YouTube videos. So ideas can stem from almost anything I'm watching in terms of deciding what gets made into a fact or a video, excuse me. What it really comes down to is my interest. If I find it interesting, if I say, oh, I didn't know that, I usually use that as my guide towards whether or not I'm going to make a video on it. And it served me well as someone who isn't classically trained in history or, you know, historical research. I do the best that I can with the information that is available to me. So it seems often for people very challenging to get a message across in bite-sized clips on social media. How are you able to do it? (laughs) I have a lot of practice, man. You know, in addition to being a product of public schools, I also worked in them for a long time. So I worked in an alternative behavior middle school and high school and elementary school. And so learning how to keep kids' attention is something that I was kind of forced to learn how to do. So you kind of learn from that environment how to distinguish the obvious from the important, make sure that the important facts are in there and get it across as fun and as short as possible so they have a chance to retain the information. So are your favorite and your most popular the same? Maybe share so we get a a deeper idea of what you're doing. Oh, man. Yeah. You know what? No, I would say that my, my favorite video and my most popular are not necessarily the same. Although I love every video that I make. My most popular video by far is a video where I, in 60 seconds, talked about the connection between Black Americans and cognac. Why is it that Black Americans love Hennessy and other cognac so much? There's a real story behind that. I would say one of my most, to me, my most favorite videos is when I discovered that the princess from Princess and the Frog, the Disney movie, movie, Princess Tionic, that was based on a real Black woman in New Orleans, Leah Chase from the historic Dookie Chase restaurant in New Orleans. That whole woman, her persona, 
her energy that was based on a real person. So that's my favorite video. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I could just talk to you for hours. You could, and we should one time. Definitely. That's KJ Kearney, the founder of Black Food Fridays. Follow him on TikTok and Instagram and subscribe to his newsletter, Who Made the Potato Salad? Such a great title. You'll find links to his socials on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Up next, bananas. That is all. Bananas, when good food continues. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. The first time we talked to Deepa Reddy, she took us on an exploration of the South Indian soup, rasam. This time, she's back to talk about another favorite food, the banana. In India, it's more than a tasty snack or a good source of potassium. It has a huge cultural importance, and you'll find a lot more banana biodiversity. The banana here is, as you said, so ubiquitous and so culturally important. We use the whole plant in so many different ways at so many different moments that it's almost impossible to navigate life without the banana. And that's really what I mean when I say that we think with the fruit. It's vital to the way that life works around here. If there's a banana, I mean, things are complete. A meal is complete. We eat fruits. Of course, we eat the flowers too. We eat the banana stems. We use the leaves to wrap and steam food. We use them as disposable plates. So the bananas are ceremonial offerings. The whole plant is a wedding decoration. They can be babies' first foods. You're going to see the thicker fibers used as cords to tie bunches of greens or, you know, other vegetables in the markets. The thinner ones are used to make either fabrics or even at home, you know, people will pull the fibers to make lamp wicks. So it's a kind of wish-fulfilling plant. And it's said that if you have uh, bananas as well as mangoes and jackfruit growing in your backyard, you will never grow hungry. And in fact, neither will your neighbors. What do we know about the banana's origins? From what I understand, all current cultivars probably originated in what is now India. Do we know how and when this happened? Yeah, well, I'm not sure about when exactly. Some people say that banana varieties may have been cultivated in ancient Papua New Guinea as well. But indeed, there are stories about the ancient sages of India who were relishing the bananas. And then this is when Alexander of Macedonia and his generals found them here and took them back to different parts of Europe. So the story of the banana's dispersal around the world really does start in India although the Arabs took it on from here elsewhere. And in fact, I think it's them who gave the fruit the name banana, which it, I think it derives from the Arabic word that means finger or fingertip. In India, of course, the native home of the banana is the hilly regions of the country and the areas which are more like a tropical rainforest. That is mostly in the northeast eastern states, the western Ghats, and in the Andaman Islands. 
So, yeah, Musa Acuminata and Musa Balbicinia <laughs> were once upon a time progenitors of most present-day cultivars, along with several of peripheral species. So let's talk about banana diversity. I mean, here in the U.S., we famously have the Cavendish banana and very rarely see other varieties except in markets that service small communities mm. from different places in the world. What about in India, where you live? Tell us about your access to varieties of bananas. Yeah, I mean, much broader. Most of us have grown up with several different varieties of bananas. In spite of living in India, some of them are so unique to a particular region that we've never visited or we just heard of them. So there are bananas which are, even though they are grown in the subcontinent, are even legendary to someone like me, right? So each region, each state, each community in each state has its own micro cuisine. And all of these things are very, very tied to seasonal locally available ingredients. And the banana can be very critical to those. Some of them can be what they call ecotypes, which means that even if you took a plant from one region and you grew it in another region, they'd just not be quite the same. They're quite variable like that. We don't tend to think of the banana as a juicy fruit, but you've realized with some varieties that they can be that way. And then there are some like what we call the hills banana, or it's known as the virupakshi fruit, which are very firm and sweet and creamy, but with a kind of dry feel to them. They've got a, a good keeping quality. Then there's the Payan banana, which has some pretty distinct dense uh, seeds in them, which you kind of just chew up as part of the banana. It, that one is actually a kind of after-dinner favorite in southern Tamil Nadu. And then there's an Assamese banana called the Bhimkol, which is one of those varieties which, because I live in the other end of the country, I've never actually tasted. I've only heard of this fruit. Then there are tiny bananas, which are known as yelaki. Some of them can be no larger than, you know, the thumb on your hand, but they've got a lovely flavor and a nice bite. There's the rastali. It's known for its kind of juicy sweetness. There are some, for example, the kalvare, or what we call the stone banana, which is pretty much hard flesh and all seeds. So, I mean, this gives you a sense of the vast range of the different banana types around here. We've been hearing for a long time about the banana apocalypse and how monoculturing bananas is a threat to their existence, specifically Panama disease caused by a fungus known as Fusarium wilts may bring about the end of the Cavendish banana. I mean, we've covered this story several times over the past 20 years. Mm. What is the latest on that? I don't know that I have the sort of scientific latest on that. What I do know is that, well, I mean, wilt is around and new variants like the tropical race 4, what's called the TR4, are still confounding folks. I think depending on whom you ask, you could feel at the edge of a precipice or you could feel like, hey, this is no problem. We're going to get through this. But I think a lot depends on the treatment paths. Now, I'm not a farmer, I'm not an expert in banana diseases, but I think if you look around at how banana ailments have been treated, you're going to see a couple of stock approaches, right? One, of course, is just to douse it with chemicals approach, which we're increasingly finding to be not only insufficient, but also very, very problematic. The second is fine-tuned genetic engineering, which I think is also a lot in the news. And I think many people will pin their hopes, their best hopes on this. The third approach is another lab-based approach, which I understand has been used a fair bit in India. I mean, it's tissue culturing, using specific cells to regenerate whole healthy plants. And this is a method that was actually used to save what we call here the Hills banana from banana bunchy top disease. 
And then the last approach, which I find the most interesting, there are these bioformulations of the sorts that, you know, old Indian farmers would have used to enhance, like, say, a mango crop, uh, using maybe manure, cow urine, neem, several other ingredients to create this body of antagonistic and growth-promoting microbes, which then get applied in the banana mats as a sort of vaccine for the plant. So the logic there being you take this and your immunity improves. So the reason that last one interests me the most is because it's usually very tactile, field experience based, drawing on just different kinds of knowledge and insight from different people. And this method of manufacturing a vaccine appears to confound the typical scientific approaches. So it appears to want to meet life with life, right? So we're not talking about irradiation. We're not talking about chemicals. We're talking about a, like a microbial army that is sent out in defense of the banana. It doesn't really promise miracles, but it's more about uh, reducing susceptibility. And um, it's an approach that seems to understand the problem um, of banana diseases and viruses and so on as being both very complex as well as ecosystemic. We've heard so much about the story of the American United Food Company and Chiquita's influence on bananas, the colonial story, which needs to be told and not forgotten. But what do we miss if we focus too much on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think we miss several things. We miss the fact that there is banana biodiversity in the first place. Now, I say that and I realize that's pretty ironic because the whole United Foods Chiquita story is about the monocultures, right? But focusing on monocultures doesn't necessarily educate us on what else is out there. It just tells us what went wrong, particularly from a labor and ecology standpoint. Then, of course, we miss the fact that there is a lot more affecting the world of bananas beyond fusarium wilt, right? I mean, I mentioned earlier the banana bunchy top disease, for example, which is a threat enough in different African countries to have prompted the creation of the Alliance for Banana Bunchy Top Disease Control. The protection and care of the banana is a much bigger thing than just wilt. But I think perhaps the most important bit is that we miss the value that is accorded to the banana in different parts of the world. The United Fruit story is not really telling us about what is cherished and loved about the banana. The banana is a source of cultural sustenance as well, right? Uh, Not just physical. And the way it stands in for notions of family and social health, the way people love to talk about the banana, um, the way the plant becomes an extension of both the individual human being as well as the social body. I mean, these are the, the sort of nuanced textural cultural details that need to be more part of the big banana stories out there. Deepa, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure again. Thank you again, Evan. That was anthropologist and food writer Deepa Reddy, unpeeling the sociocultural layers of the banana. She's based in Pondicherry, India, and you can see more of her work at patichery.com. That's spelled P-A-T-I-C-H-E-R-I.com. Celebrated food scholar Dara Goldstein longed to get to Russia, the country that her grandparents fled from and refused to discuss. 
Her first opportunity came in 1972. Ever since, she's made it her life's work to explore the foods and flavors of a country that is front and center in the news right now. This interview with Dara first aired in July, a few months after Russia invaded Ukraine. So I'm always fascinated by people who come to a love of exploring food deeply through literature, since I feel like that happened to me as well. How did studying the Russian language spark your interest in in Russian food? I struggled with the language. It's complex. The grammar is pretty difficult. And when I was first studying it, it was very different than language study now, which is oral proficiency. Then we just read texts. But the texts we were given were Chekhov, they were Gogol, these 19th century authors who described amazing feasts. And somehow, and I still don't quite understand how it happened, but I would understand just enough to somehow breeze through the descriptions of food, not really understanding every word, but getting this feel for the abundance and for the deliciousness. And then I would go back and look up the words in the dictionary. So fascinating. There are two Russian words for food. Can you describe them? Yes. One is yida, which comes from yeast, which is an interesting word in itself. It's a verb that either means to be or exist, or it means to eat. And the other word is pisha. And yida is just sort of a general word for food, and it can also mean a meal. So it's not symbolic of anything else. But if you talk about pisha, then it can be something metaphorical. It can be something higher, like, you know, food for thought or food of the gods. It's something that is more than just the food stuff on the plate. There's this thread in Russian food lore of privation and abundance And the privation part is so linked to the brown bread. You have this amazing excerpt at the beginning of your first chapter from Anna Karenina talking about an old man who makes, in essence, a bread parfait. It's bread on bread in a cup. You know, when we talk about being hungry or people who are really struggling to get enough to eat, We say from hand to mouth in English, but the Russian phrase is from bread to kvass, kvass being the lightly fermented drink that is made from stale black bread. So bread was used. I mean, it was never wasted. Even the crumbs were turned into desserts. Countess Tolstoy the long-suffering wife of Lev Tolstoy, wrote a cookbook, and she has a beautiful recipe for an apple pudding made with leftover breadcrumbs. Also embodied in this history of famine and privation is this deep well of culinary ingenuity. You've written books in which you talk about fermentation and culturing in great detail, particularly in your, your last book, where you explore the food of the far north of Russia. Is there a particular 
experience that you remember having during those first years that you were traveling where you ate something fermented or cured and were just flabbergasted? I think that what struck me was I had never liked mushrooms. I think it's probably because I grew up in Pittsburgh And even though I'm sure that there were amazing mushrooms to forage in the 1950s, we weren't going out and foraging them. So my parents really liked mushrooms, but they were always those horrible canned ones that to me were just slimy and disgusting. So I thought I hated mushrooms. And then I went to the Soviet Union and I tasted freshly gathered mushrooms that were simply sautéed, but more to what you're talking about, the fermentation. I tasted them salted. They had been layered with garlic, with some dill, some peppercorns, and uh, salt brine, and they were extraordinary. It was really a transformative moment for me. You know, it's interesting for me. As an Ashkenazi Jew, our food is often characterized by being brown and bland, And as you talk about the food of Russia in this book, one becomes so aware of the high notes, the sourness, the pungency, the spiciness. It just is all a different color. It is. And that's what makes it so exciting to me. You have horseradish, you have beets, you have very pungent mustard, you have vinegar, All of these things that, even though it's not a spicy cuisine, it's very pungent and sharp. Yeah, sharpness is really a theme. So what is at the heart of a traditional Russian meal? And what does that even mean to you, traditional Russian meal? And is it bifurcated by class? Yeah, it's definitely bifurcated. I mean, when I think of the heart of a Russian meal, I think I would go to bread and soup, or perhaps the Russian saying, cabbage soup and buckwheat groats, that's our fare. So it would be soup in a big communal pot. The Russian national soup is cabbage soup, preferably made with sauerkraut, the fermented cabbage. If you make it with fresh cabbage, then it's called lazy cabbage soup, and it's not nearly as good. But then you have the starch, and preferably black bread or buckwheat groats. But actually, what I think is the glory of the Russian kitchen is its pies. And very rarely would you have soup without some sort of pie on the side, whether it's a little hand pie, the pirashki, or vatrushki, which are a personal favorite of mine. They're open-faced pies that are filled with farmer's cheese. Or you can have a grand pie like the kulibyaka, the fish pie that I mentioned, or so many others. And again, I keep coming back to these sayings. The house is beautiful, not for its walls, but for its pies. So the title of your book is The Kingdom of Rye. Explain the reverence of rye. In Russian, it's actually the Tsardom of rye, (laughs) but I didn't (laughs) think that that had the right ring in English. 
rye is so interesting because it actually was a weed that was growing in Southwest Asia. People noticed that it was much hardier. And it came to Russia probably in the mid-10th century and was pretty well established by the 11th century. And because it's much hardier than wheat and can withstand poor soil and also a much colder climate, it became the grain in Russia. Dara Goldstein is the Wilcox B. and Harriet M. Adsit Professor of Russia Emerita at Williams College and the founding editor of Gastronomica. Her latest book is The Kingdom of Rye, A Brief History of Russian Food. In a minute, from the Yucatan to Veracruz, we dive into regional flavors of Mexico when good food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. As a boy growing up in Austin, Texas, Rick Martinez recalls watching food television with his mother and seeing the likes of Diana Kennedy and Rick Bayless speak with authority about the foods of Mexico. Deciding to connect with his roots, Rick now lives in Mazatlan and explores his cultural heritage in his book, Mi Cocina, Recipes and Rapture from My Kitchen in Mexico. Hi, Rick. Hi. I would love you to talk a little bit about the impact that Diana Kennedy had on your young self. I know you admired her, but was it strange to see a British woman representing Mexico when you were a young boy in Austin, Texas? It was really strange. I didn't really understand. She clearly had a knowledge that not many other people that were known in the United States had. Certainly, she was probably the most prominent voice of Mexican culture and cuisine, first above Rick Bayless, who also was an authority in Mexican culture and cuisine. But to a brown Mexican-American boy growing up in Texas, it seems strange to me that a British woman and a white man from Oklahoma were the authorities and were telling me about my culture and the cuisine. My mother and I would watch her show in particular, and there was an episode that she was making chorizo rojo y y verde. I loved what she was doing, and she was going to the markets, and she was talking to the purveyors, and seeing these chorizos hanging in the mercados was so incredible to me. But I didn't understand why she got to do this. It seemed to me that there had to be a Mexican or a Mexican-American chef somewhere that could be explaining this. I respected her and I learned a lot from her, but I also had a resentment towards her because of that. And I decided as a teenager that I wanted to be that. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be the one to teach other people about Mexican cuisine and culture. I think there's so many amazing things that are happening both in Mexico and in the United States relative to Mexican and Mexican-American, Mexican immigrant cooks that I think those are the people that should be celebrated now. Let's talk about this exploration of Mexico that you've done in this new book, Mi Cocina. I feel like it's been a way for you to really explore deeply your roots So let's start in the capital with a dish that you love. Could you talk about the gazpacho moreliano? 
Ah, yes. Ah, it's such a beautiful dish. It's so strange because obviously, at least I had a very strong perception of what gazpacho is. And I think most people, at least in the United States, know what that is and have a very clear idea of that it's a Spanish soup. In this particular town, it is spelled with an S, not a Z, and it is basically a fruit salad. There's a street that probably has about 20 vendors on it. And each of the vendors sells their variation of this fruit salad. And it's typically made with mango, pineapple, and jicama. And these very young cooks with very sharp knives are very talented and are very quickly chopping this fruit into perfectly tiny little cubes. And they toss them together with lime juice and chili and put them in these tall glasses, top it with cheese and chamoy, crema and more crushed chili. And then people around the streets just walk around eating this gazpacho. It's such a great accompaniment to grilled meats and fishes or anything that has sort of a chari flavor. It acts as a really great acidic and sweet counterpoint to a lot of foods. I'm going to jump now to the mountains of Veracruz and a dish called uliche. Yes, it's such a beautiful, comforting dish. I think that for a lot of fans of Mexican food, you probably are aware of mole. You might even be aware of mole poblano versus the moles in Oaxaca. But I think probably what you may not know is that a white mole or mole blanco exists, and it's called uliche. And it's a really beautiful dish that the base is actually fresh chilies and corn masa. It's such a classic and important flavor combination in all of Mexican cuisine. But the fact that it exists in this beautiful velvety sauce, I think it's really incredible. And, you know, relative to some of the other more complex moles, it's a really easy mole to make. It's really beautiful. I have served it with roasted chilies and stewed chicken. To me, it reminded me almost of a a chicken and dumplings. Chicken and dumplings are something that I grew up with in Texas that my mom made. And it's creamy, it's chickeny, it's a really beautiful cold weather comfort dish. And the uluchi really speaks to me in that same way. It's very comforting and very homey. And now let's go for a minute to the Yucatan and relleno negro. Oh, (laughs) Wow, you're just pulling all of my favorites. Oh, that's Um, so nice. (laughs) The relleno negro, the first time I had had that, I had a friend who was a chef at a resort in the Yucatan. And I basically told him, definitely I want to eat your food. But what I would really like is I would really like to try some just taco stands out in the middle of nowhere that are, are much more homey. To me, that food is much more real because the people that are making it are making it because they love that food and they know that they're good at it. They're not making it to please a tourist. They're making it because of a genuine love and desire to make that food for other people. And so he took me down a highway and we stopped at this little taco stand, seemingly in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing else around. And I walked up and there was this bubbling tray of this black sauce. And I was just so intrigued. I'd never seen anything like that. It didn't look like a mole. It actually just looked, it almost looked like charcoal. Like it was that black, but the smell was incredible. I could smell the spices. I could smell the chiles and then I could smell turkey. And I love turkey 
Imagine Thanksgiving turkey, but with vegetables simmering in a soup and lots of chiles and spices. But then this like really interesting note of fire and char. And I was so intrigued I had to have that. Even after I ate it and I absolutely loved this dish, I didn't understand how something that was so intensely black could be that flavorful and not bitter or acrid. And it is this really amazing process that the Mayans created to not only char like or incinerate uh, the ingredients in this dish, but then to somehow remove all of those flavors, those really harsh flavors, and reconstitute those ingredients so that they, again, retain their, their original flavor, but with this really nice smoky flavor. It's an incredible dish, and it's very striking. And I put it as a spread in the book because it is such a beautiful and unusual dish when you first come across it. Well, it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you, Rick, about your new book, Mi Cocina. And once again, congratulations. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Rick Martinez. His cookbook is Mi Cocina, Recipes and Rapture from My Kitchen in Mexico. You'll find a recipe for his relleno negro on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Like many of us, Konach McLeod spent a lot of time during the pandemic baking. Unlike most of us, he became a social media star by doing it. Living on the Isle of Lewis, the northernmost island in the Outer Hebrides chain of Scotland, he's a man who loves his kilts, his canine, and his cookies. He shares the joy he's found in the Hebridean Hygge lifestyle. Did I say Hebridean correctly? <laughs> uh, Evan, it's like you lived in the Hebrides your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the Hebrides. Well, firstly, Falcha, everybody, and it's lovely to be here, Evan, with you. The Outer Hebrides were part of Scotland, but we're quite unique from, from Scotland. We're, we certainly have our own culture, identity, and of course, our own language as well of Gaelic. And funnily enough, from a perspective of geography, we're closer to the south coast of Iceland than the south coast of England, <laughs> to put it into perspective. So we certainly look north and have a little bit of a Viking feel about our, our outlook. Can you talk a little bit about this entwinement of Gaelic and Norse culture and the impact of the Viking era on the islands? Absolutely. Well, I think it can be summed up even in the wee village I'm from. I'm from the village of Cromor on the Isle of Lewis, which in the old Norse Gaelic in English would be to have a big cow. And the next village is Crobig, which would be to have a wee cow. And I remember <laughs> growing up, always very proud that the Vikings thought we had bigger cows than the next village. That was uh, <laughs> quite a highlight for us. But the Outer Hebrides were part of the Nordic, the Norse kingdom for 400 years, up until 1266, when Scotland bought us from Norway for, I think it was about 4,000 marks 
a bit of a bargain anyway. But certainly there is still, with our language and our identity and a lot of the historic sites on the island, that the Vikings, def- you can see that they were there and we're very happy with that. Is there a Scottish word for hygge, this Scandinavian <laughs> sense of comfort and delight? Yeah, this is wonderful because not that long ago I was doing an interview with Danish radio and we talked a lot about Huga and that wonderful contented feeling of just just having a lovely afternoon with a cup of hot tea and a nice cake and all those things that come along with it. And there's a beautiful word in Gaelic called blas and really it does mean contentment and warmth and there's a lovely saying Beri Blas Erlois which translates to there's a time for everything you know meaning kind of slow down and just enjoy something that you love and I definitely love baking and you know pulling out my cookbooks and learning what I'm going to to make that day. You and your partner Peter split your time between Glasgow and Lewis Talk to us a bit about your place on Lewis. I think many of us, for many of us, it would be a total fantasy. What kind of range do you use for your bakes there? Well, of course, we have a, a wood-burning stove <laughs> that heats our home and keeps us warm and keeps our bakes going. And we we live off-grid in our, what we call a hut, maybe what you would call a, a cabin. And it's a very special place that kind of suits our lifestyle. We love the fact that we're outdoors people, we can only get there by canoe. So it makes the weekly shop a little bit of a challenge, but (laughs) it really is an an idyllic place. Peter, my partner, is a gardener and has his own gardening show on BBC in Gaelic. And so we film the show there and it's a very special place. Do you remember the very first recipe that you shared via TikTok? I do. And it was a very simple, but still, I think one of my favorites, it was a gingerbread loaf. The reason I shared it simply was because it's one of my favorite bakes, one of my most simple but favorite bakes. And I used to get a lot of friends asking for the recipe. And I just thought, well, wouldn't it be easier if I shared it online and then they can watch me making it, the recipe is there. And I suppose I should have realized that with friends being able to see it, so could everyone else in the world. And suddenly thousands and thousands of people started to watch my gingerbread recipe. And yeah, as they say, it went from there. So funny. So the first recipe in your new book is a shortbread recipe. Why did you choose that to be the first one? And then when do you usually eat it in terms of the time of day? Well, shortbread is so important to every Scots person. And it's interesting, I chose a couple of different shortbread recipes for the book. The first one is absolutely a classic shortbread that you would just have in the afternoon with your you know, hot cuppa of tea or coffee. It's the perfect, simple one to, to have. There is another one in the book, the wonderfully named Bride's Bon, which is a Shetland shortbread. 
I love a bake that has a story connected to it. And the bride's bun was traditionally baked by the mother of the bride on the morning of the wedding. And as she would return home from the wedding, the mother would, (laughs) she would smash it over her head as she walked back from the wedding. And it was intended to bless the marriage, but the guests would scramble to get a piece of the broken shortbread because seemingly if you put it under your pillow, it is supposed to give you sweet dreams. In other words, shortbread is very versatile. You can eat it with a nice cup of coffee or you can smash it over your daughter's head. (laughs) (laughs) That's a quite beautiful one too because it's baked in the round. Yes, you bake it as the kind of petticoat tail, which is our classic. It's beautifully buttery, but it's the addition of the caraway seeds in the bride's bond that gives it that really unique and delicious flavor. So we have to talk about oats. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite way to make and eat porridge? Well, I'm very passionate about oats to the point that there's a whole chapter just about oats in the book, I decided I needed a kind of savory version of my porridge oats. And I started to play about with different recipes. And I kind of stumbled across making, I would really call it like a brunch risotto. And instead of the risotto rice, using kind of quite thick rolled oats as the base, and then, you know, simmering it in vegetable or chicken stock and adding your flavor base continuously above that. And that has become an absolute Sunday staple in our house. So in terms of a bake, share a bake that uses oats in a way that we really get to enjoy the texture. Mm, That's a great question. There's, of course, our classic dessert, Kranachan. I don't know if you've heard of Kranachan, Evan. I've heard of it but I can't imagine it in my mind. Well, it's wonderful and so simple. It's one of those, if somebody visits quite last minute to the house, this is the perfect dish to make because you toast the oats and just to give them that little bit of kind of, yeah, toasty kind of smokiness in the pan. And then you'd whip up your double cream or or whipping cream and add in the wonderful Scottish flavors of what we call heather honey or a Scottish honey, along with raspberries that grow so well in Scotland. And of course, uh, a dram of whiskey as well. And you fold that all together with the toasted oats in this beautiful, most perfect Scottish dessert. What a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been amazing, Evan. Thank you. That's Konek McLeod. You can find a recipe from his new cookbook, The Hebridean Baker, Recipes and Wee Stories from the Scottish Islands, on our website. Go to kcrw.com slash goodfood. How do you pay your workers a living wage while not accelerating gentrification? How one chef achieved a nearly impossible goal when good food continues. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. When Chef Uwen Le opened Beau in LA's Virgil Village, she had a simple goal pay her workers a living wage without accelerating gentrification in her neighborhood. That's not always a given in the restaurant world. In fact, it's shockingly uncommon. But 
Lay had a background in city planning and economic development. It hasn't been easy, but she's managed to build a business founded on equity and sustainability while honoring the Vietnamese food she grew up eating. Bao U is the subject of this week's In the Weeds. My name's Oen Le, and I am the chef owner of Bao, which serves Vietnamese street food and comfort food. Bao is a restaurant that has three main goals to serve fresh and flavorful food at prices affordable in a rent-controlled neighborhood and to create good working conditions and professional development opportunities. Food was the topic of our breakfast conversation. And while we were eating lunch and while we were eating dinner, we would talk about more food. It was also a source of comfort. We also try to sit down together and eat as many meals as possible. So I think food and family really come hand in hand. Two almost felt like the same thing. I come from a background with probably 15, 20 years doing community organizing, also working in the Vietnamese American community, specifically after Hurricane Katrina on rebuilding, but also community empowerment. And then after that, I went to city planning school and I worked in the labor rights and economic justice movements in Los Angeles before quitting those endeavors and going back to culinary school and then working in kitchens for a few years before opening up my own restaurant. I've always been really attracted to food, but also the business of food and the folks who work in the restaurant industry. I think it's an area that's so pervasive that we interact with folks all the time because people have to eat several times a day and they make choices about what they put into their own bodies and then also where they spend their money. And I still wanted to continue with my lifelong pursuit of social and economic justice and equity and access, but I wanted to have kind of a small enough venue, so to speak, in order to meet some of these values that I had that I was kind of working on these large kind of billion dollar funds. But I wanted something that I can really kind of put my arms around and try to bring my values, even if it's small, that I felt like it was something that could really be something that I can work with and grow. I think restaurants have a large role to play in reimagining sustainability and workers' rights because workers have so low visibility, especially back of house workers in restaurants, and yet folks are eating out so often and even when they're getting takeout that, you know, there are all these kind of hands that touch the food before they do. And I just think that it's something that so many people interact with daily and that there's so many opportunities for how we can grow this industry and create more sustainable opportunities in this industry, but also increase understanding of the consuming public because I think a lot of folks do take food very personally. And I think it's an entry point to talk about issues like workers' rights and sustainability that seem more accessible to consumers. To be honest, I'm still trying to find the balance between 
what affordability means for guests and then having livable wages for my team, especially when the food itself is so prep heavy to meet my other goal, which is to have fresh and flavorful food that we basically make from scratch. And so I don't think that I have some key to this three goals yet that I'm trying to achieve, but I'm working on it. And I think to come in to a business with these values and not prioritize necessarily one over the other two is really what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but the next steps really are trying to calibrate these different things and then finding you know, more efficiencies on how the staff operates, trying to find a better workflow, and then also trying to define what affordability means. Is it every item on the menu? Is it certain items? Is it trying to find some sliding scale charges that I can create so that folks who can afford more do pay more? So I'm still trying to work these things out. We're just a little over a year old. And so can't say I have any types of solutions right now, but those are the values that I'm going to continue to have and bring to the business. When people say that they can find something cheaper in Little Saigon or San Gabriel Valley, my response is that, yes, you absolutely can, but it won't be the version that we have. And I think that there's a lot to be said about what quality means. And then also that not just the quality of the food itself and that the care that goes into it, but the quality of the service and then also what other types of positive impacts come from investing basically with your money on where you spend it as a consumer. But really, you know, I just tell people, yes, you're right. You can find a bun me cheaper in San Gabriel Valley or Orange County, but it won't be our version. Vietnamese food representation, I think, a lot of times has been sort of distilled down to pho dishes, you know, like the beef noodle soup, but that just one specific type of noodle soup. And Vietnam's such a large country with so many different regions, you know, 1,700 miles of coastline, that I think there are so many dishes that don't necessarily get the popular attention or isn't, you know, that first dish that somebody thinks of. And also at the same time, I think there's a reason I don't call my food traditional and I don't call it authentic because I feel like food always evolves and food in Vietnam is evolving. It's not some sort of thing that you put in a museum. And because Vietnamese food to me really means fresh, full of flavor, with a lot of contrast and textures, with a lot of care that's put into kind of layering different flavors and different textures together in a specific way that I think it has so much to offer. This is my first restaurant that I've ever owned and been a chef of. I think calling Beu a model right now, quite honestly, would just be a bit premature. I'm still just every day, this, this is the name of this show, like in the weeds, trying to figure stuff out. If somebody's to come to the restaurant this weekend, I'd recommend definitely the braised pork belly 
an eggs dish. It really is a dish that's very comforting. You can taste these different items in there whose textures have changed. And it's just transformed into something different by spending time with each other. I'd also probably tell someone to get the bun mei sandwich. Even the vegan one, I've spent a lot of time coming up with the vegan pate recipe that I feel like can stand up to the bread. The customer favorites a lot of times really is the popcorn chicken with the fried curry leaves and then our summer rolls, which of different kinds. The one that I created for the menu is also vegan in that it has avocado on the inside and then seared oyster mushrooms just right on the outside, but still encased in a thin piece of rice paper. And I wanted to do a vegan version that would create some new excitement about the possibilities of what you can wrap in rice paper. That was Uwen Lei, chef and owner of Bayo on Hoover Street near Clinton in the area between Silver Lake and East Hollywood. Special thanks to Kenny Ng for helping to produce that segment. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. I can't even express my thanks to the Good Food team. Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks as always to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman, wishing you a healthy and happy holiday season. I'll be back next year with more episodes of Good Food. <laughs>